You're about to listen to the Healthy Church Growth Show with me, Madge Abasaki, minister, author, and visionary of growthechurchnow.com. I'm also known as the Healthy Church Growth Advocate. My guests on this show are fellow ministers, church leaders, and experts in their field. We'll share practical tips to address challenges and provide solutions for the church at large every Monday. Enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hello and welcome. I'm so excited to present this particular episode with Redina Colinecci, who is an expert fundraiser. And it naturally links from the chapter before, which if you haven't listened to it, is episode 10 of the Healthy Church Growth Show podcast with Chris Couples, who's from Christians Against Poverty. And he was talking about debt, debt of uh, personal debt within your congregation, perhaps, or with the wider community. And so this chapter naturally dovetails to that. And this week we are talking about fundraising and how we can raise funds for our various missions, which God has asked us to carry out. Now, Redina says some really quite challenging things, um, but it's all backed up with very sound uh, biblical exegesis and knowledge. I think you're going to really enjoy this, if, if not be challenged by it, and certainly learn what mistakes have been made and what you can do to start to address it. We start off by talking about Redina's own faith journey, which it starts in communist Albania and ends up by doing some research about fundraising and stewardship. You're really, I think, going to be engaged with this. And don't forget, this is part one of two. Part two is next week and it will give you practical steps. So enjoy this episode. And as usual, let me know what you think and please do share this link with a church leader, a ministry head, so that they can become more equipped. Hello and welcome wherever you are to another episode of the Healthy Church Growth Show podcast with me, Madge Abasaki. And today I have Redina Kalecci, and she is from Christian Fundraising Consultancy based in the UK, but she's got international experience too. And we're going to be talking about all things fundraising. Redina, how are you? I'm well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Oh, no, it's a pleasure to have you. And, you know, when I, um, I looked at a video of yours um, some weeks ago and I was completely enthralled and I had to have you on the show because you're the first person who's ever spoken about fundraising from a proper proper biblical perspective with exegesis which um was really impressive in fact i watched that video three times and um so you you are a fundraiser but um i want to ask you how did you how did you start your faith journey and how did you get into it yes i started my faith journey way back in the early 90s when I was a student in Albania. I grew up in Albania and uh, Albania 
was an atheist country at that time. Um, I was born after the churches were closed in Albania and all the other religious institutions as well. So we were one of the first generations of children and young people growing up in a completely atheist country where priests, for example, or, or ministers were actually thrown into prison for, for baptizing believers, where churches were completely destroyed, burnt to the ground, or turned into communist community centers. Um, I remember as a young girl and as a teenager, I grew up in a country where we never celebrated Christmas. I had no idea of what Christmas was about wow. uh, until, you know, 1991, 1992. Um, we didn't have a Bible. In fact, the Bible was translated completely in Albanian in 1997. Because um, for, for those of you who don't know the history of Albania, it's a very small country in the Mediterranean, surrounded by um, parts of former Yugoslavia, uh, like Montenegro, Kosovo, uh, Macedonia and Greece and its opposite Italy and for 500 years my country was under the the Turkish rule under the Ottoman rule and during that time they tried to impose their religion Islam upon you know not only Albania but other countries in that region and historically a number of people converted to Islam and and Christianity was not the the, the main religion but uh, both the Christian, the, the Greek Orthodox Church that is active in Albania and, uh, and the Muslims or the, the, the sort of Islamic rule, they did not want Albanians to, to discover scripture for themselves. So a lot of the services even you know, prior to communism would have been in Greek or in a language and in a way that most people could not really connect with God. Uh, there was only a small evangelical movement in Albania at the beginning of the 20th century, and it happened to be in my hometown. And uh, this is where they, these first evangelical Christians tried to translate the New Testament in Albanian, and they built a, a really strong ministry that spread in, in some other parts of Albania before the Second World War. But then after communism won, uh, after the war, they, they sort of took the power uh, however, coming back to, to my youth, early 90s, I, I became a believer through the witness of a, of a wonderful Brazilian missionary, a lady called Najwa Diba. They, she and a group of, of other missionaries had spent time in Kosovo learning Albanian in faith, trusting that one day God would open the door for them to come to the country. So when Albania was the last communist country that fell in 1990, they were able to come to come across and to meet people. They came to my university and they spoke to me and to other students. And for the first time, I really realized, I remember uh, I was reading the Gospel of Luke and mm -hmm. it was a surprise to me to, to see who Jesus was and what he has done for us. And, and here was I, a, a student of philosophy, who was studying <laughs> wow. Judaism at school and who always believed that religious leaders were traitors and enemies of our country. And later on, you know, because my, I am passionate about church history, I discovered that some of the people we had sort of almost like trampled upon, you know, metaphorically, were actually people who had for a long time in the history of Albania trying to maintain our language and, and share the message of God's love and God's grace. So that's where my journey of, of faith started. That's powerful. That is so, so powerful. So what took you from Albania to the UK and 
what you do now, which you've been a fundraiser for many decades now. So tell me about that. Yes. Um, I, as I said, I was studying philosophy in Albania and mm. in one of the conversations with, uh, with some of these missionaries who, who came to my country, they were asking, because I, I like to study, I like to read, uh, I've got quite a sort of strategic cerebral mind and uh, I was saying I'd love to know more about the Bible and to understand how it all sort of fits together. So one of them said, would you like to go to, to Bible college? And I said, oh, I would love the opportunity. So in 1993, I came to Spurgeon's College in, in London. Uh, I had spent one year working in Albania on, uh, in the Albanian television. So this is where really my journey, in a sense, a deeper journey of, of faith and with God started. I'd been a Christian for, for two years and I lived in a town that had only, you know, a bus that went to another town from where you got the train to the capital. So coming to London and having to face the underground, I think probably for, for 18 months, I, I, I would be so stressed, <laughs> you know, traveling, shock. often traveling in the wrong direction on the underground and so on, being in such a big city and, um, you know, being at a theological college. I enjoyed my, my studies at Spurgeon's. It really broadened my horizons and my understanding of scripture and of who God is and how we can serve God. And at that time, I, I have felt this calling in my life that God wants me to serve him. But in a sense, to be a little bit like Spurgeon's himself, you know, with we often hear of Spurgeon as somebody who on one hand had the newspaper and the Bible on the other. And I felt, you know, I want to hold the Bible in one hand, but another hand have something that helps me to, to inspire and encourage Christians to connect with their society, to connect yeah. with their time, to yeah. communicate well, to yeah. share the gospel, to contribute. Um, so I had a chance to, to actually respond to an advert by a, Christian Institute, which at that time was in Oxford, called the Whitfield Institute. They're looking for somebody to do some research on charitable giving in, in the UK. Right. And this was back in um, 1996. And uh, after three years at Spurgeon's, I spoke to the academic dean, a wonderful man called Colin Brown. And he said, Redina, I said, I like your mind. You have a researcher's mind. You ask the right questions. So why don't you apply for this research position, which was for two years? And he said, it will give you the opportunity to apply your biblical thinking, but also your critical thinking as to how the church in the UK promotes generosity, mm. in what way do Christians engage with, with mission causes and other causes they support, what motivates them to give. So I prepared a, a simple proposal as to how would I go about doing this research and went and applied for, for this position. And to my surprise, I was awarded the scholarship for two oh, years. Congratulations. Let me, thank you. <laughs> um, to do this first research on, on giving. And I spent two years working with the wonderful Dr. David Cook at the Whitfield Institute in Oxford. And that's when I started contacting many church leaders and many ministry leaders and going to speak to them about how do they promote stewardship? How do they do fundraising? And this is when this whole new world opened up to me. And, and I was excited, but also surprised because I looked back at my experience at Spurgeon's College and I thought, hold on, I learned Greek and Hebrew and church history and exegesis, but I did not learn 
anything about how to inspire congregation members to be generous givers. I did not look at college at mm -hmm. any Bible verses or passages that promote generosity. And, you know, when I talk about myself, I'm also talking about 20, 30 other uh, people who were in my class, most of whom went to become Baptist ministers in, in local churches. And yes, in the final year, when they did their ministerial training, they might have had some discussions around the issue of church finances, but those discussions were very practical on how do you manage a budget and what you know, role finances play in the life of the church, but not spiritual discussions. So mm -hmm. I noticed at that time that there is a gap in the teaching and training of church leaders on how to promote generosity in the church, on how to release generosity, the power of God's generosity in their congregations in a way that enables believers to flourish, but also enables the church to have the resources it needs to do its mission in the world. And then talking to, to different uh, organization leaders, you know, I discovered that, for example, in, in a lot of churches in the UK, the minister would preach only once a year on the value of stewardship and generosity uh, at a time when their congregation members would probably be listening or watching or absorbing thousands of advertising messages every day, everywhere they went. Mm. You know, the church was in this battle. One message about inspiring a congregation members how to be good stewards of God's resources one message a year versus thousands of messages every day in the streets at the supermarkets, the billboards, you know, the escalators as you go up and down the underground, on the radio, on TV, everywhere else. So why do you, why do you think that is? Because I, I have made that observation in, in different spheres myself. As you know, I work with churches and, I, and I, I've actually served in a local church, uh, several actually, and at quite strategic level. And I've seen that myself. So why do you think that is? I think that is often because uh, many churches and, and some Christian ministries operate with a paradigm of sacred and secular divide. Whoa, what do you mean by that for those I that mean, are not yes. initiated? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think there is a mindset in the Christian community that ministry is sacred. What God has called me to do, you know, whether I'm a church leader or a, a ministry leader or a missionary or somebody, God has called us to help the poor, to share the gospel, to reach the unreached, to heal, to do all these wonderful things under this umbrella of ministry. And we know that we need money to do these things, but somehow we think that money is just fundraising, raising funds. It's, it's a bit of a secular activity. It's, it's the dirty word. It's something somebody has to do almost unwillingly so that we can do the wonderful things that God has called us to do. So mm. this is the mindset, this is the gap that can be expressed in, in what I call, you know, I, I divide sort of the thinking into three areas. You know, there are churches or ministries that operate under what I call the poverty theology. So the, in these ministries, they think, well, we have a disdain for material possessions. You know, having money, having wealth is a bad thing. Rich people are bad people. Even rich Christians have somehow made their money in ways that are not sort of quite right. And they think, 
you know, prosperity, well, that could be a reward for some people, but it's just spiritual prosperity, not, you know, necessary physical prosperity. Possessions are just a curse, are something bad we have to handle. And they, their Bible verse is often sell everything and give to the poor. So this is their sort of riding thinking in, 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 um, in stewardship or in, in generosity. And then they think, if you say, well, we have needs, they'll say, no, we don't have any needs. We just don't want to think in terms of, of needs in, in our church or in a community. We believe that we are pulling together. We will just kind of get through. And they, they think of themselves as carefree, you know, the lilies of the fields, the bears of the air. We don't have to worry. So it's in some churches and in some ministries, you see this approach that they would almost glorify the fact that they don't have the funds or they will see that as a way that God is blessing them and they have to struggle. When God blesses us, we don't have to struggle to do his work. Mm. So, but they see that sort of poverty as a way of blessing. And then you have got people who think in the context of prosperity theology, and then they think if you do the right thing, then God makes you prosperous. But that prosperity is just for you and your family to enjoy. So it's almost a calculated approach that you think, give 500 pounds or $500. I see ministries sometimes do this when they say, seed this money into us, plant this seed, and this seed will grow into $5,000 for you, in a sense, to help you, you know, deal with your personal debt or struggles you might have. Now, what part of what I mean, what what part of the Bible, what theology are they using um, for that? Theory? I think they they use often. I mean, the verse that I use is sort of Matthew seven verses seven and eight. You know, knock and the door will be open. Ask and it will be given unto you. So they feel this sense of entitlement that we should go and we should ask or, uh, you know, look at Malachi and the doors, if you are tithing, that the doors, the gates of heaven will be open and you will be showered with blessings. Now, I will get into that in a moment. I believe that God blesses us when we give generously, but he doesn't bless us so we can hold those blessings in our, you know, arms or in our jar. Mm. He blesses us so our blessings can overflow to be a blessing to others. Now, how many people who give that 500 or $1,000 or pounds in the offering do that thinking, I'm giving, I want to give because I want God to say to me, well done, good and faithful steward. And if God returns this to me fivefold, then I will give back those 5,000 to do more good for God's kingdom. I will you know, give that to, to actually serve, to love, because I'm not afraid that I will have less. I'm not just simply kind of giving to get. And then we can also have what I call the sort of the suburban theology, where people think, oh, but I need to take care of my family and do my things first and then give to God what's left over. And there are, you know, they often kind of focus on, uh, on verses from Haggai, where it says, well, those who don't care for their family are worse than an infidel. So, yes, we care for our families, but ultimately that's not the purpose of why God is blessing us with with wealth and possessions. And, you know, often this is where there is that misalignment or misinterpretation of scripture 
that sometimes leaders will do will bring to the congregation because of lack of understanding so that's that's where they will be talking about poverty or prosperity or what i call the suburban theology where we feel well me first then god second or, or third and then a biblically balanced view of stewardship which as i say is not often even taught in theological colleges but the way I see this view is looking at three sort of parts of scripture and helping the church leader first and then, you know, the congregation to grow into the steward identity. What I often say to church leaders when they say, what's the biggest secret for increasing giving? What's the biggest secret, the biggest secret for being a successful fundraiser? And then I say the biggest secret is learning how to grow generous givers. Hmm. Ultimately, the ultimate purpose of fundraising or of stewardship in a church context is not just the money, hmm. it's the heart of the donor, the spiritual life of the donor, hmm. the journey that the donor are on. And if we look in scriptures, we discover that really the steward identity is what God calls us to be. Look at Genesis chapters one and two. God creates the world. He creates the creatures and the seas and the mountains and the living things. And then he creates the man and the woman. And he gives them dominion over all the earth. In other words, the first aspect of that relationship between God and Adam and Eve is stewardship. I create you and I give you dominion. I appoint you stewards over the creation, stewards of everything I have made, stewards of everything you will produce from what you have made, you know, from what you continue to, to make. And then I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where Paul talks about us being entrusted with the mysteries of the gospel. So we are stewards, we are managers, not of just God's word, God's relationships, you know, people, but we are also stewards of the good news. Yes. If I am a good steward of the good news, it means I'm sharing the good news with others. Evangelism and mission are just acts of stewardship of our generosity towards others, of letting them know of that God loves them, that God is there for them. And then again, going back to the Old Testament, passages like Deuteronomy 15, it just show us, show us very clearly that we are stewards of justice. We are stewards of the poor. You know, think of the poor, the widows. I love the Old Testament for some of these stories and for the generosity and openness. Because these things, although God says these are the laws, these are the things you should follow, when you read them, I feel, at least when I read them, I feel inspired, you know, for God to say, leave some fruit on the trees so that the people walking by can pick them up. Mm. You know, care for the widows and the orphans because they have nobody looking after them. Every seventh year, you know, release your slaves, forgive your debts, let the land follow so that the land can breathe. All these things that God commands his people to do are expressions or are reminders of what it means to be a good steward you know, care, care, love, generosity, giving. Mm. So for me, it's important that congregation members can be encouraged. Okay, stewardship looks different in, in some ways in the 21st century, but 
if they themselves realize that I am a steward of everything God has entrusted me, my life, my life is a gift from him, my relationships are a gift, you know, the skills I have that I do my job or how I serve other people come from God, the money that I'm, I make belong to God, then I don't have to hold, I don't have to feel that I can be poor because God doesn't want us to be poor. You know, he wants us to live this life where we are vessels, that he fills us and we empty ourselves. There is a passage in Mark, the, the story of, uh, you know, Mary Madeline bringing Jesus that alabaster jar with the expensive perfume and washing his feet. And that's the story I often use with church leaders saying, you know, your purpose in helping your, your people to grow in stewardship, to grow in generosity, is to think of everything they have as that precious alabaster jar. Can they bring and break it in worship of God? Not in worship of the leader, not simply sometimes just to make the church bigger and build more and, and do more. You know, those things are good things that we have to build and develop and grow. But ultimately giving at the heart of it, it's also that act of worship. Mm -hmm. She brought the most precious thing she had yes. to wash Jesus' feet because she knew who Jesus was and what he meant to her. What you said is so rich. Um, and you, you mentioned, you know, leaving the land to be fallow um, so it can breathe. And right now, as we date stamp this, we are in mid-June and just slowly coming out of um, what the world calls lockdown. Actually, a wise woman said to me the other day, I don't think this is locked down because we're children of God. We are locked in God. So I, I thought that was brilliant. But I want to ask you about this lockdown. What sort of mistakes are you seeing some or mistakes you've seen some of the churches making when it comes to um, this period, which I feel has given us such a massive opportunity? Yes, I think this, this period, you're right, is sort of locking into God and has been a, an opportunity for the church and for Christians to show love and to show generosity to their neighbours. And there have been a lot of outpourings of love and generosity. But at this time, I have also seen churches struggling financially or churches struggling to fulfil their, their purpose or connect with congregations in a way that gives the congregation members opportunities to serve through their giving. For example, uh, I have been contacted by church leaders and I have contributed to, to seminars and, and spoken to leaders who said initially they were caught unaware. So they thought, okay, this is the time for the church to serve. So they moved their services digital. They started their digital services. They spend a lot of time and energy in getting it right with live streaming and everything else. But I have seen some churches, especially small evangelical churches, Anglicans, Methodists, some Baptists, who forgot to invite their congregation members to serve with them by not asking them to give. Church leaders stood in a position, and that's where the sacred-secular divide raises its head again, saying, these people can't afford to give. Now it's a hard time. Now people you know, might not have enough money. So they actually refrained from inviting people to give as part of the worship service. 
And some congregation members thought, well, the church is closed. They don't have any expenses, so I can't see why I should give. Mm -hmm. What we see in the wider British sort of charitable scene is a growing in generosity. You know, the money that people didn't give to the church, they give to another organization. They give to a ministry working abroad. They give to some mission agency or to a local community uh, project that was happening and that needed them. I mean, sometimes we feel, again, I go back to how churches understand giving because giving is promoted in the church only in the context of talking about bills, talking about electricity, talking about heating, talking about salaries or equipment. Then there could be the misunderstanding because these things are not happening, then, you know, we don't need money. As I said, the way we should promote giving and what it really is, it's an act of worship. People bring their first fruits before God because through their giving, they want to show that God is central to their lives, that God is their provider. So none of us has the right to take away this this thing from the congregation by not asking them to give. What I also saw with with churches kind of not necessarily doing it it right is that um, churches have fallen asleep. They were because of people they come to the church every week, they had assumed that a lot of these communications would happen on Sunday meetings. Now that they didn't have the Sunday meetings, they discovered that, for example, their directories needed updating. They didn't have... What do you mean by directories? For a directory of church members is the, you know, the names, addresses, telephone numbers, emails of the congregation members. Uh, Often churches would produce this once a year or once in 18 months, but some churches have even stopped doing this because now, uh, well, it's been a practice over these years, but it's increased. They will give you a little notice uh, sheet when you walk into the door of the church. So it is you as a congregation member who have to call somebody to join a group or to go to a prayer meeting. It is not necessarily the church sending you an email or a letter asking you to join or to participate in something. So now the churches had to communicate to their members. They didn't have 30% of their addresses were the wrong addresses or email addresses that were not valid anymore because we know that people change email providers or they move and they, they don't necessarily let the church know without being asked of their new details. And some churches were unprepared even to ask their congregation members who are elderly to contribute. Congregation members who are elderly often bring an envelope to the church, but because they were not meeting over eight weeks, it becomes a significant amount of money that the church is missing when 30, 40% of their congregation are over 70 or 75. So I sat in another webinar and they were saying, Redina, what do we do? I said, you write a nice letter to these people. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you gained some insights. If you did, please share the show link with other leaders. And don't forget, every Monday, we'll release another episode of the Healthy Church Growth Show.